Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Grand Budapest Hotel is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about the Grand Budapest Hotel. The book, Grand Budapest Hotel, recounts the adventures of Gustav H., a legendary concierge at a famous European hotel between the wars, and Zero Mustafa, the lobby boy who becomes his most trusted friend. Wes Anderson tells the story through layers of flashbacks recounting the tales of a historic hotel, the theft of a priceless Renaissance painting, a daring prison escape, and the battle for an enormous family fortune, all against the backdrop of an abruptly changing world. Eric! Best Wes Anderson movie? Mm, I don't know. I'm, the jury's out on that. You're saving. You're keeping us in suspense. Got to keep you in suspense. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's in the running, but there are a lot of really good Wes Anderson movies. There are so absolutely. It's it's really good. This movie's very good, and the thing that I appreciate most about this movie, I think, is that it is so tight. I mean, it is. The Wes Andersoniest Wes Anderson movie in many ways. Uh, you know, we've talked about it before. He pretty much rehashes the same themes over and over. This is no uh, substitute. It's very much a rehash of the same themes and the same techniques and the same storylines and all that. But at the same time, it has a certain whimsy to it. And in some ways, I feel like it is the culmination of his work. And that's what makes it so impressive to me. Yeah, he... As we go movie to movie, every one of them, if he stopped, it would you would see the trajectory, and it yeah, it has really felt like it's gone up with every movie. Um, hiccups aside, and I, this movie is so good; it really captures <laughs> a lot of what he does best. Yeah, he he's got a a different cast. Uh, he and while we still see a lot of returners, mm-hmm. he gets uh he gets old fines in there, old Voldemort, Voldemort himself. Yes. Uh, who just knocks it out of the park as Gustav. I feel he like it's really. A, yeah, I feel like it's a little bit of a bummer that he didn't win Best Actor for this role. This is like a, this is like a such a great role yeah. in cinema history, in my opinion. I mean, uh, whether or not he's the best representation or best, my favorite one, all of that stuff aside... Um, I I feel like Ray Fiennes in this movie really deserves his own accommodation because he is awesome. Yeah, this is he, sorry. This is, is do you say Ralph Fiennes? This is Ralph Fiennes. I just said Fiennes because I was <laughs> as I went to say it, I could not keep track of which one it was going to be in my head. Um, and, and there were interviews I was listening to where they kept mm. calling him. Rafi- they you they didn't call him Ralph. They Rafe. went by Rafe. Yeah, but I thought Rafe Fiennes was a different guy. Am I getting this all mixed up? I don't know. Maybe I'm having a maybe I'm having a a, a Mandela effect moment or something. I don't know, but I want to <laughs> see him and Christoph Waltz from Inglorious Bastards do oh, just a duo. That could be a little much. <laughs> that could be it's, a little much. It could be much. But it's, they have a similar, and I'm trying to think of if this is from a different era, this kind of character, the fast talking, uh, a little bit, 
what's the word I'm looking? Effeminate yep. character. I really enjoy the the line when Gustav was breaking out of prison, and one of them tells him, "You're a real straight man." He goes, "Well, I've never heard that one before." But, uh, <laughs> well, I think um, the thing about it is that he's so he sees himself as so cultured. Mm-hmm. that there is a, you know, there's a feminine side to somebody being so cultured in that they wear perfume and they, you know, appreciate art and all this stuff. But at the same time, uh, you know, he's, he walks into the prison and makes sure to beat somebody up the first day. You know, yeah. this is some, it's like he's definitely straddles this line, but he's kind of this romantic idea, right? He's more yeah. of a, he's an embodiment of an idea as opposed to an actual person. And yeah, he's that is to be... the hallmark of this, you know, uh, confident buffoon character, this archetype that we've talked about throughout all of these movies. He's trying to fit the Renaissance man, but he's mm-hmm. not. And yeah. that's, I mean, a big a big part of it with him coming into the money and sort of the, the latter half of the movie where he joins that crowd that he had so loyally served to be one of them. And yeah. even uh, Mustafa points out that... You know, he has the same problems they all do with his vanity and just this need to be liked. Um, and some of the, the sham nature of their, right, uh, their love for one another. It's well, all fairly skin deep. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to go to the forums here because Davey Mack had a great take on this. He, he calls out, uh, at the end of the movie, um, there's a line that Zero says to the author, to, um, Jude Law says, to be frank, I think his world had vanished long before he ever entered it. But I will say, he certainly sustained the illusion with marvelous grace. Mm-hmm. And th- this air, this kind of idea of this era gone by, this this uh, this person who's beholden to an era, era gone by, that is a huge theme in Wes Anderson's movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, you could say that's very similar to what Wes Anderson is himself, right? I mean, yeah. his movies are timeless. They, you know, generally don't have a year associated with them, although, and even though most of them are contemporary pieces, they take place in the era of which they were filmed, they exude this retroism, right? Yeah, there's a class to it. Yeah, but if you look at these characters, and I just want to go over this confident buffoon archetype because it's something we've talked about at length, on this mm-hmm. podcast, but in case somebody's jumping in for the first time, it's kind of this, this is a, an archetype that we're calling this main character in Wes Anderson's films. Uh, it starts off with Dignan in Bottle Rocket, goes to Max in Rushmore, then goes to Royal and Royal Tenenbaums, goes to uh, Life Aqua- Steve Zissou in Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, mm-hmm. uh, Owen Wilson's character in uh, Darjeeling Limited, the Fantastic Mr. Fox in the Fantastic Mr. Fox, Uh Jury's out on who it embodies in Moonrise Kingdom, but we get the return yeah. of this main character in Grand Budapest in M. Gustav. Mm-hmm. Um, and there in is. In full force. What's that? In full force. I mean, he in is. In full force. For, yeah. for what we were lacking in Moonrise Kingdom, he in some <laughs> ways cranked it up to uh, a degree that even. And I thought Steve Zissou was probably really at the top of the list of confident buffoons. Yes. Um, but Gustav is, is the epitome of it. I feel like we've, we have ridden the funicular up the Wes Anderson films. We've arrived <laughs> at with 
Rafe finds at the top to well and, introduce us. And that's the that's the thing about this this archetype is that I do I would say that this is a great embodiment of it. I still think Mr. Fox and Fantastic Mr. Fox is the best embodiment of this character just because it's so overt. Um but and, and you know it's I think it's on the forums here. Um I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh Davy Mac says the uh, that M Gustav is his favorite Wes Anderson character ever. And I love this character of M. Gustav. I love him. But I gotta say Steve Zissou is probably still my favorite character. And it's probably just because of Bill Murray. It's, it's the have a beer effect, you know? Who'd you rather have a beer with? <laughs> uh-huh. I'd love to have a delicious gourmet meal with champagne with M. Gustav. But I would rather have a beer with uh, Steve Zissou, probably. Although yeah, I, I gotta say, Steve Zissou is kind of an asshole. I think M. Gustav would be better for conversation. Although, would you really come away feeling like you'd had a fulfilling conversation with M. Gustav? Or... He seems to know how to make somebody feel like they're the only person in the world. I mean... That's true. If he romances me the same way he romances these older women... Tilda Swinton in the best old age makeup. <laughs> Tilda Swinton's great. This she's so good. I love it. I love it. It man. sent me in circles. I couldn't decide if it was her. And Liz oh. walked by and goes, "Is that Tilda Swinton?" I'm like, N-. and we're pausing the the Amazon movie viewer to try and like get it to show up at the cast listing at the bottom, and it didn't. So we assumed it wasn't her, and I didn't find out until. I got all the way to the credits. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I cannot believe that that makeup and what a good job they did. And how well she played the the old lady in need of the attention of M, of H. Gustav or M. Gustav. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm, looking at the, I'm looking at the Oscars. This one actually won uh, four Academy Awards, uh, but they were all four kind of the composition it was uh, best achievement in costume design makeup and hairstyling uh music and original score and uh in production design so basically all of that set dressing <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it was also nominated for best picture uh best director wes anderson i think this is the first time he's ever been nominated for best director um cinematography uh editing and best original screenplay it was nominated for all those but didn't win so yeah, uh, Fines, uh, whatever his first name is, was not even nominated uh, <laughs> for best actor, which is kind of a bummer. And this is that's the year odd. it went to Eddie Redmayne for the Theory of Everything. Yeah, that's that's hard competition. The other the, uh, the other ones were the dramatic biopic. Yeah, I know you're playing Stephen Hawking. I mean, uh, also nominated. Uh, Steve Carell for Foxcatcher, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Imitation Game, Bradley Cooper for American Sniper, and Michael Keaton for Birdman. So a tough year. I don't know, man. I gotta say, yeah, I think he got. <laughs> I think he got a little slighted, baby. Yeah, well, and that's, that's there's something about the. It's the same reason that with the Oscars and with actors, it's yeah. There's a. Uh, a theme to what they choose and Wes Anderson is going to always struggle regardless of who he's up against on any given year just because the the way comedy gets kind of the short end of the stick when it comes yeah to but that's the thing about this movie Davy Mac Davy Mac points us out this is a very light-hearted film but there's a lot of darkness in it there's a huge amount and right it it gets masked in the storytelling. Right. So I want to talk. This one 
we've always seen these movies as books. We always get the book at the opening, typically. Uh-huh. Well, uh, we don't always get that. I think that was pretty much only Royal Tenenbaums did that. They only actually showed a book? No, no I, I think they might have done it from Moonrise Kingdom, too. Moonrise King- no, Moonrise Kingdom got a, got a painting. Okay. Um, at the end with their title on it. I mean, this one, it has a narrator, which is interesting, because the narrator is actually a character in the movie, which is something that he kind of toyed with in Moonrise Kingdom. And, of course, we had yeah. Alec Baldwin narrating the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, and he never appears in that film. Right. Um, but what I was kind of leading up to with mm-hmm. the idea of this narrative is that now that we... Before we got a little bit of the narrator with Moonrise Kingdom in the scene, mm-hmm. now we have a narrator that is in the film and he is actively self-editing, which was a really oh. fascinating move because he is – the things that are truly sad, the death of Gustav, the death of uh, Zero's wife, Yeah, uh, they're brief. They're super brief. Super and brief. Before the – painful parts of movies of Wes Anderson films could be kind of like the suicide attempt of Luke Wilson yep. was and a very Royal long Ten- monta- yeah. musical uh, musical number mm-hmm. over it and the reactions afterwards. Steve, Life Aquatic, um, the death of Owen Wilson's character, you know, they're swimming in the ocean and he's having a conversation with him. And in this one, we just get... Uh, his wife died of, and his wife and his child died of right. a, a flu that we deal with easily now. Mm-hmm. And Gustav was killed, shot, was shot. and that's it. That's all of the, the screen time we get to sort of comment on those deaths. And it was, but they still held the weight of a lot of the previous films. And I think that the way that Wes Anderson chooses to kill characters and, the emotional effect that that can have on characters, especially because he's generally pretty good about building us up with those characters before killing them. Uh, it's, yeah. it's impressive that one, they carried emotional weight and two, he had to give, he gave them almost no screen time and for a legitimate reason in that, uh, Mustafa doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. That's actually a much. good point. I love how he, he does self edit those things because they're not things that you'd want to, go into depth on right that that makes a lot of sense there yeah, is i mean the there's also the death of of uh jeff goldblum's character <laughs> yes which is like this like kind of whimsical chase although dude can i just put this out here if you're getting chased by someone mm-hmm. go directly to a police station <laughs> like you mean don't run through a museum and an alfred hitchcock like montage <laughs> yeah don't run through a museum that's about to close <laughs> um what is it the about the the about to close business? Is it the hopes that they'll close with you inside and them outside? I have no idea. Uh, but the thing, like, it's kind of funny and it's kind of like fun. It's a fun little caper, and then boom, fingers are gone, and he's wrapped up in a sarcophagus, <laughs> which is actually kind of funny. I mean, the yeah, the, the thing, uh, you know, Davy Back points these these out as well in the forums, but um, but like the cat getting thrown out the window, the <laughs> Uh, the I mean I, I thought it was so tra- tragic that M. Gustav gets killed by the Death Squad, um, and all of this is like uh, it's just it is it's just like shorthand. It's like uh, and by the way, this person died. Well, and for Gustav especially, the 
it really showed the stark contrast of the changing times. And that's why I was, you know, as I was kind of tinkering with the synopsis, because I, I usually just take whatever one's on IMDb and edit mm-hmm. it. I wanted to make sure to put abruptly. The world is abruptly changing because mm. the trick that worked for Gustav before on the train doesn't work with the death squad. And he tries to right. be super charming. He shows them the letter that he's previously received. And obviously, uh, Edward Norton's character is probably no longer around, uh, yeah. given the change in management that's frequently occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that he reacts the same every time because he's expecting the same response every time shows this, shows the character that is trapped in a very specific culture that doesn't really survive the war. Yeah, absolutely. It's and it's it's you know this kind of pseudo Nazi thing, the the ZZ mm-hmm. instead of the SS. Like, yeah, uh, it is. It, there's a there's a real darkness that hovers over this movie, and yet it's so bright and wonderful and whimsical, and it's such an interesting balance in that the tone the tones are so dissonant, and yet at the same time the overall story flows and works so well. And to that, I really give a lot of credit because we do get a lot of the same things that we see in Wes Anderson's other movies. We get mm-hmm. orphans. We get uh, we get uh, the, the scene of the, the confident buffoon walking through wherever they are master of that domain yeah. and, you know, talking to everybody, straighten up, you know, you over there, you know, get these things to this room and blah, blah, blah. That scene is like in every single one of Wes Anderson's movies, but he keeps refining it and refining it and refining it. And I don't know, this movie, we talked about at the end of the Guillermo del Toro run, uh, Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak was my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie coming out of that run. And it's Mm -hmm. going up against movies like Pan's Labyrinth, and I know that you didn't necessarily agree with me that Crimson Peak was his best film. But there's something about Crimson Peak that when you watch the entire filmography of Guillermo del Toro, you understand that Crimson Peak is definitely the culmination of his taste and styles and a melding of his kind of big blockbuster Hollywood movies and his small personal Spanish language horror films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he brings he ties it all yeah. together. His The skills that he has picked up individually. Yeah. It's, it's it all comes together in the end, and that's why I'm really interested to see his next movie, which is coming out this year, I believe, which is his Cold War monster movie or ghost story or something. Cold War, I think it's a merman. Yeah, I think it's it, I, it, awesome. Yeah, I think it has something to do with like the creature of the Black Lagoon, which is really intriguing to me because creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite uh, Universal monster. So really, yeah. I think he's the coolest. I mean, he's so Lovecraftian. He's basically a shadow over Rin's mouth. Yeah. Um. So I'm really just incredibly intrigued in this movie that to see what Guillermo del Toro does next because it feels like Crimson Peach. Crimson Peach. Crimson Peak is such a. Uh, it feels like it's such a nice bow on his movies. You know, it's such a nice culmination of everything that he's done up to that point. I feel a similar way with Wes Anderson. Uh, and this film, like it is such an amazing culmination of all of his work. I honestly have a very hard time seeing him refining this even more 
than he does with the Grand Budapest Hotel. And maybe that's why he goes back to animation uh, yeah. after this movie to kind of decompress a little bit and reset. Um, but Grand Budapest is, in many ways, I feel, Wes Anderson's opus. It's probably his best film. I don't know if it's my favorite film of his, but it's probably his best film. Yeah, the the technical aspects that he has mastered to put all of this together. And I'm, it's, I'm glad to hear that it won Oscars for so much of the production uh, because this hotel is amazing. On an architectural level, they they nail it. And one of the things that's really tricky and cool is that they even managed to span the hotel across time periods. So Wes Anderson has such fixed sets uh, across his movies. We end up revisiting them. We end up getting a lot of this, the single point perspective shots. And in this, we get them both in the 30s and then again in the 60s, 60s when they're having the conversation. And you see the aesthetic of the hotel that has tried to keep up with the times. And, you know, it it feels... Even with the aspect ratio changing, yeah. the hotel really it provides a character that feels uncomfortable. Like you know, you it's still trying to stuff itself into the the trends, but it just it's no longer no longer fits. Yeah, um, it's and they do such. A, I love the '60s version because it's so like like I, you would know what that architecture is more is more than I would, but it goes from like this kind of Victorian looking hotel to this i is that uh brutalism it's kind of like just like a giant it's it's trying to be that there's a lot of streamline there's a lot of smooth angle you know and the victorian era that this hotel is from originally is so there's so much decoration there's so many small intricate pieces and that's a really that comes from a time period of craftsmanship Mm -hmm. where that was okay and you did that for a specific reason and when you get to the 60s uh just as a high society reaches this point where it, technologically you want to be advanced and yeah the extruded aluminum of chairs uh, <laughs> the bright stainless steel look uh-huh. uh, or chrome um in some instances that that all tells you that we are technologically forward but it doesn't it doesn't feel right. Similarly to uh, uh, the concierge, Jason Schwartzman, who yeah. shows up as a, and he's okay. He's serviceable as a concierge, right. but he's not the concierge that fits the Grand Budapest the way yeah. it was meant to, the way it was originally built. Um, yeah, and this is the theme that that kind of follows the confident buffoon around. It's mm-hmm. the the aging the aging out of an era and when you were comfortable and now you're uncomfortable because so much is Steve Zissou. We get to watch the old films of Steve Zissou (laughs) and what it used to be like breaking through the ice and diving and discovering a snow creature that, you know, was thought (laughs) extinct. Um, But now we're all just sitting in our rickety old boat, trying not to get killed by pirates (laughs) Uh, it's not that same, you know, it's not all fun and games anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's, well, that's the thing too, about this confident buffoon character is that this, the the archetype is always a leader. They're always leading the group. Um, and that's why I really do think Edward Norton is a confident buffoon in Moonrise Kingdom. Cause not only Mm -hmm. does, is he like the leader, but he also has that scene where he gets to do the walkthrough of his domain and, you know, 
Um, but yeah, they're always the leader. And I think that there's a commentary here a little bit on the absurdity of leadership that... Oh, absolutely. That we as human beings want to, uh, you know, latch on to leaders and be led. But there's there's an inherent understanding and an unspoken kind of tacit understanding amongst everybody that no one has all the answers, right? So yeah. this person might be our leader, but we don't know what they're going to do. <laughs> and, you know, this absurdity, like to even being in a leadership position, right? It's like there's a, um, I don't know. I, I feel like it's got to be some kind of commentary in Wes Anderson's movies. Yeah, and we get it throughout with, and here we have, because there is this sort of secondary character that mm-hmm. has arisen off and on. It's not entirely throughout, but uh, the the authority figure, who is not necessarily the confident buffoon, but we have uh, Hinkle, Ooh, I think is Edward yeah. Norton's character's name. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Bruce Willis as, as the police officer in Moonshine's Kingdom. Yep. We have, I think in some ways you could say Jeff Goldblum in... Uh, in Life Aquatic, Life Aquatic. I would say it would be. Is, I would say it would be a, either Angelica Houston's character or the um, the bankers. The oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The banker who and he immediately caves in that case. Yeah. He's supposed to be the authority, but he wants to fit in. And that's well, and he's got that. Yeah, and also Steve Zissou's who's got like his manager who's always keeping tabs on him. Oh, that's right. Who yeah. totally ditches him at yeah. the first sign of financial trouble. Well, yeah. sorry, later. And in Rush, where um, you have like the principal and mm-hmm. Royal Tenenbaums, I don't really know who fits the bill there. But you're right. There is, there's always the uh, the confident buffoon, but they always answer to somebody. Yeah. And that somebody is usually unreliable um, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And they're not, their authority, they don't even. It you know it doesn't feel like a meritocracy. They often right. don't feel like that they've achieved that because of their talent. Uh, you know they're the other half of the puzzle in mm. some ways for the confident buffoon. And I like that because that it creates a villain role. Now this one has pretty much has an actual villain in it. Um, uh, <laughs> what's his name? William Gosh, Defoe? there's so many people in here. Well, Willem Dafoe's the and, lackey and Adrian Brody's yeah, mustache. Adrian Brody, yeah. Uh, he is definitely like a villain, and there like there aren't usually villains in Wes Anderson movies. There's mm-hmm. you know obviously in Fantastic Mr. Fox there's villains, which is really you know that got called out because that's really the first time there were villains. There are foils in them, you know obviously, mm-hmm. and that's what kind of Jeff Goldblum's character in Life Aquatic is. He's more of a foil to Steve Zissou, yeah. um, but. In this one, there is like a real villain. Like Adrian Brody is sending people out to sending uh, Willem Dafoe out to kill people, and he does it with uh, sociopathic efficiency in his natural William Dafoe way. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love the difference between Willem Dafoe in this movie and Willem Dafoe in Life Aquatic. They're like so night and day different, and I think that there's just something really wonderful about that. It seems like he, I I would love to just see the the individual direction that William Defoe is given by Wes Anderson to kind of follow for these movies because, for instance, when uh, 
Adrian Brody punches Gustav. Zero punches Adrian yeah. Brody. William Defoe punches Zero and then turns around with his fists up and with his rings in front of him. And he's kind of got a weird makeup thing going on. Like he looks very <laughs> ogre-ish. Yeah. Uh, well, he's got a weird just, face anyway. You could say he looks like a s- goblin. <laughs> Maybe a green if goblin. Only he was green. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then he just, he doesn't really talk much in the movie. If right. At all. Uh, right. I guess he asks a couple questions. But I don't know. There's just something about, he goes to such a weird place with it. I want to know, is that him? Is that Wes Anderson? Is it <laughs> the two of them over a couple of beers? Yeah. That they settle on, okay, what's the weirdest thing you can do? Because William Defoe is such an amazing actor and he's been in so many grand roles yeah uh, never as the lead but always in these kind of secondary positions and uh-huh. he, he's fantastic at it that i just want to know what what's generating <laughs> his motivation i, I love it though he's i mean he, he takes a henchman level like to serial killer basically in this movie i mm-hmm. mean he's chopping off people's heads and sending them in boxes to people he basically a- is Kevin Spacey in seven, except we <laughs> except actually with, get to see the the head this time. Yeah, I could not remember whose head was in the box, and I was trying uh-huh. to. It's like, oh my god, who's is it? There are a couple movie references in this. There's, oh yeah, there's a very Tarantino reference mm-hmm. when during the prison break, the guy jumps into the hole uh-huh. with all the guards, uh-huh. and then they look down, and everybody's dead. That to me felt super ter- <laughs> like Wes Anderson's take on a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, but that's even for- interesting scene too. Like that's the whole thing. That's like this prison break is so whimsical, and then we literally see two people get stabbed to death on screen simultaneously, <laughs> and it's like, it's like, uh, and then and then what? And then uh, you know, M. Gustav. Lightens the mood by saying, "I think you'd call that a draw." Yeah, and then they, and I was and like, "Are is... you serious? Like that guy just freaking died." <laughs> but then well, you understand that it's actually a it's it's a story being told, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the the dramatic retelling of and Zero wasn't even there for that, so he right, you know, who knows what the version he got uh-huh. the story from gustav mm. but you're right and it follows a marx brother level goof about a ladder <laughs> that's so long that yeah. you know it takes four guys and a couple minutes of film time to run it by the camera mm-hmm. uh you're right it just it bounces back and forth and it shows these really horrific things and it makes them kind of a laugh kind of exactly a yeah like yeah the, the head being pulled out of the basket the fingers uh, getting chopped off and the two men stabbing each other. It's all get wrapped up in this whimsical thing. It's so odd, you know, that the, that usually this kind of tonal shift doesn't work, but it works in this. And it's, it's more than just like the entertainment, you know, schlocky type of thing that, you know, it's good schlock, but it's, it's the, that kind of grindhousey thing that Tarantino does where you re juxtaposing, kind of things right it's uh juxtaposing tones in this one it's less like a nice quip from a cool gangster it's a whimsical you know truffle (laughs) next to a severed head like it's so weird right 
it's it's really odd that this even works and the, i think the fact that it does is just a testament to tarantino or to tarantino right uh to wes anderson <laughs> That's to tarantino right no and i i think in some ways it's you know and this may be reaching but mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to say about the hotel the the world has been rocked by one oh. more it's about to be rocked by a second and here is this truffle of a hotel mm-hmm. in the middle of that region uh, and ultimately becomes the headquarters for a goof on the ss yeah uh with a love story wrapped up in it with uh, bottomless riches yep and a shootout that doesn't really end with anybody being shot i don't no they, you know like when they shoot like stormtroopers yeah, the whole they light up the whole upper floor of this hotel, but nobody really gets hit. Right, um, which is odd for how much death we've previously seen. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's too hard to make a gunshot across a room. <laughs> silly, but it's it's all silly. That's the thing. It's it's ultimately silly, but in a very satisfying and wonderful and entertaining way. Yeah, I guess it is because they all lean out of their rooms and just start shooting. And yeah. there's no acknowledgement of one side versus the other. Yeah. It's just shooting. I do think it's interesting. I, you know, this is the first time that uh, Wes Harrison collaborates on a script with... Uh, who's he? Who did he collaborate with on this? Oh, this oh it's a, a story credit to Hugo Guinness. But it uh, looks like Wes Anderson pretty much wrote this one single-handedly which is a because he gets the only screenplay credit um but uh oh that's interesting he he does the paintings in the royal tenenbaums but it's interesting right because <laughs> this is wes anderson kind of taking the reins you know i have issue with the roman coppola collaborations in wes anderson um yeah I love the Noah Baumbach collaborations, and I love the Owen Wilson collaborations. But I do think that it's a testament to Wes Anderson that he is now doing this stuff by himself, and in many ways, the one he writes single-handedly with some story credits and some inspiration by Stefan Zweig, uh, they, this one is, is pretty much his most impeccable film, which I think yeah, is really and- great. The inspiration from Stefan Zweig, from my, mm-hmm. from what I've read, is he was just a classical writer, yeah. so it was almost more of a form of set dressing than it was, yeah, totally any story inspiration. The interesting thing is sometimes they will do these things to cover their asses in, in the event that <laughs> this sounds awfully close yeah. to. Um, but famed yeah. classic writer Stefan Zweig, yeah, but the. I mean, it's all it's all very interesting, right? There's, uh, I, I would I would encourage people to go and read the Stefan Z- Zweig, uh, Swag. I don't know how you say it, uh, or Zweig. Um, I think that's probably closer since it's Austrian. Yeah, Stefan Zweig. I think that's what. Uh, but go to his um, Wikipedia page because it is very interesting. It's basically uh, very similar to. Uh, life or life aquatic. It's very similar to Grand Budapest. All this shit is running together in my mind. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I also want to point out something from a directorial standpoint in Wes Anderson in this movie is that we've talked about before his use of diegetic music, which is music that's mm-hmm. in the scene. Right? He likes yep. to have a record player sitting in the corner playing music in the scene, and then we hear that as a soundtrack of the film. 
And yeah. he used that a lot at the beginning of his career. If you go back and watch Rushmore, almost all the music in Rushmore is diegetic music. It's almost all in the scene. And it, it comes and goes throughout the movies. Um, but in this one, he's not only using the scene to, you know, uh, he, he's, he, he's, he doesn't really use diegetic music that much in this movie, but he does use diegetic titles. <laughs> so he uses the sets and the uh, yeah. and the walls and the posters and everything to put up titles in the scene and you know where you would where you would maybe put up like a little title card that says like in the middle of the farm in the middle mm-hmm. of the fields on the train instead it's like you know uh what, what was the name of the prison like the name of the prison we see it plastered oh, it was, on this giant uh, door it was a uh, stop post or not stop post uh I know what you're talking about. It, yeah. We had a number. It was, yeah, it was like 16 one of or the something. mini stops along the prison route. I yeah. guess. but it, that was the thing. It was he uses that so much in this movie. I mean, in the very beginning of the movie, it's so apparent. There's the old Lutz Cemetery. We see the um, the the uh, the gravestone or the tribute or whatever it is to the author, and it says author underneath, and then. We go to the Grand Budapest Hotel and we see that written out. It's something that he's used in the past as well. I mean, um, on the Darjeeling Limited, we see Darjeeling Limited. The title card is actually on the back of the train. Mm-hmm. And he uses it throughout this movie. It's like the whole movie is just filled with this, of, of putting words up on screen, which is very interesting. And it's something that I don't think you would see very often in... Uh, big commercial films nowadays because you are gunning so much for that international audience and that international take. I think plastering English Mm -hmm. words up on a screen is not necessarily a financially viable option for a, uh, for a big motion picture, but Wes Anderson is, well, he could take the reins. He could do whatever the hell he wants at this point. (laughs) Yeah. He's bought himself a lot of, a lot of runway at this point. Yeah, but I love uh, I love that, and I, it really made me think back to the, to his use of that over time, and that's how we remember things like the Belafonte. Uh, like when I think of the Belafonte, I actually think of the script of the Belafonte, the actual typeface that it's written in on the side of the boat. You mm-hmm. know, the Royal Tenenbaums. We see it as a book. It's a printed piece of material, and then even the way that the scenes are set up, because this one is broken out in the scenes, um, which is something that he's done. Um, broken up, breaking up, breaking movies up into chapters or scenes. Um, yeah, we haven't seen that since Life Aquatic, I think. There's Life Aquatic. He also, the one that it really reminded me of that was very reminiscent of is Rushmore. You know, in Rushmore we get those, um, we get those oh, curtains. curtains. Yeah. And for some reason that it really reminded me of Rushmore, the way that the scenes are presented in this film. But I love how mm-hmm. everything is so tactical. You know. And there's something to be said about cramming all that stuff into the actual scene. Because you don't really realize it when you watch films and it gets and stuff gets kind of plastered onto the screen to help you along. Mm-hmm. There's something really nice about all that stuff being inside the scene and having typefaces and having script and having uh, branded material that's made up like Mendel's or like Kentucky Air or like you know what whatever um you know he does that so much in his movies i think that it's a really cool way that he world builds by cramming all of this branded material into the into the films and yeah. then using that to to set the scene and tell the story it's a grand it's a not a grand a, a graphic designer's dream come true yeah. to just 
generate material. Uh, it doesn't have to, you don't have to see it bastardized by an actual <laughs> corporation when you send out the, oh, what's that called? The rules basically stipulating oh, the how style to use guide. the logo. And then, uh, yeah, the style yeah. guide. And then people immediately ignore the style guide. Yep. Uh, typically from mm-hmm. what I've seen. Mm-hmm. So now you have Wes Anderson who is so follows the rules when mm-hmm. it comes to those things and has such an aesthetic eye that it's awesome seeing him generate these materials because you're right. It pulls you into this universe. It's uh-huh. believable because the repetition and the, the understanding that it's based in some form of rea- of some form of logic, which right. hints at a reality, hints at a reality, and, hints, at, hints at a world. And yeah. it orients too. It's similar to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've been thinking about hateful eight the past couple of days after mm-hmm. hearing a really good interview. Um, the, where you were in that cabin had really helped the film because there are mm. so many people moving around. Uh, and as you get to kind of the culmination of the story, it allows you to follow along with the surprise Yep, because you're aware that there are things occurring that the space didn't allow for. And I think Wes Anderson uses that graphically. Mm. Uh, you understand that you are in the the Grand Budapest of the 30s because of the aspect ratio, because of uh-huh. the design elements within. The, you understand you're in the 60s because the age is showing. It has a different color palette that's more of the 60s. You yeah, understand. It, it actually has a different color aspect ratio as well. Yeah, it jumps across yeah. three or four. Um, I didn't. Well, it jumps across it. four eras. Yeah, we have but, the and girl, each one I think has a different. I think so. Yeah, I, we have the girl going to the cemetery, which is modern era, mm-hmm. sort of. I mean, it's kind of current Ish. state. Then we have old narrator yelling at his son, grandson or son. <laughs> he, I don't know, but he shoots him, and it's and seen. Yeah, Tom Wilkinson doesn't need to be. There, it doesn't need to feels be there. Like. But it, there's something interesting about that, right? That's Tom Wilkin Tom Wilkinson. Maybe it's a, just an excuse to get him into the movie. Which, but I love that. <laughs> and then we get the '60s, which is Tom Wilkinson's character being played by Jude Law, mm-hmm. and Zero's character being played by F. Murray Abraham. And then we get the Grand Budapest era, which is the '30s. So there's such an interesting. Um, I mean, it's so interesting to have a movie that takes place in four different eras like that, and yet. And, you know, it really takes place in two, and if you want to split hairs, it really takes place in one, and everything else is, is just dressing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it's it got kind of an inception quality in yeah, that. Does, it, it really, does. You have to follow it, and by yeah. the time you get to the 30s, you understand that you're, you're really being told a tale. Like, th- there's some serious weaving going on, and that makes, you know... It makes the aesthetic mm-hmm. a little more fitting that it has this storybook quality in places yep. with the funicular, with the single point perspective of the hotel from a a shot that is not a helicopter yeah. and wouldn't be achievable in reality. And nothing sits in a back – the way that the mountains are backdropped to that hotel or, you know, even if you could get a hotel like that <laughs> in a setting like that, the shot wouldn't look like that yeah um, well it's all you, miniatures you know but you buy into it anyways yeah. you're along for the ride similar to fantastic mr fox the right. themes are very adult about greed and vanity 
and yep. instinct over responsibility mm-hmm. and fatherhood and fatherhood but it's all dressed up in a kids movie which <laughs> I know. You, you i don't know i don't know if you pay mm-hmm. less attention or more attention uh if you give it more more room to do what it wants because you're accepting you know it allows you to suspend disbelief yep. more fully it's interesting. Like, if I were to characterize the directors we've seen so far, I mean, I think about them in kind of big, broad strokes. Like, I think mm-hmm. of Tarantino. He's the entertainer. Oh, yeah. Like, he has a finger on the pulse of what entertains his audience. And it does. Time and time again, he delivers. And people tend to hate him, but I feel like that's also part of his entertainment aesthetic. Yeah, you can't have everybody like it. That, but it's something that about evoking an emotion, right? I think that he loves mm-hmm. it when people hate his movies because it, he, they have an opinion, right? He wants to make you uncomfortable. Yeah, but there's something that's really kind of fun in those kind of demented ways that he <laughs> brings across these super entertaining films and pays homage mm-hmm. to to uh, to all film as well. But so he's he I see him as like the entertainer. I kind of see Edgar Wright as like. This is going to come across as very, um, is almost derogatory, but I don't mean it this way. But he's really like the man child. Like all of his movies are about trying to recapture youth mm-hmm. um, while coming to grips with being an adult. So far, that's what he's done so far. He's only made four movies. Yeah. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, he's a ghost man. You know, he's he's got the monstrous <laughs> humans and the, and the human monsters. Um, uh, that's kind of his thing. He's the monster man. And then David Fincher's just like probably the greatest living director. So we'll just give him that. But, uh, (laughs) but Wes Anderson, he's really like, you know, I always like, yeah, the confident buffoon. We just talk about it over and over and over on this podcast, but he's also really the master of themes, uh, and the master of tone. Cause like he is able to just stack this tone stuff up in such interesting ways. You mentioned it with fantastic Mr. Fox, the way that he deals with death in his movies, it's always very sudden, but it never, it never like catches the characters. Like they, they always talk about it very frankly. They never mm-hmm. get mired down in it. They always get mired down in the death that happened off screen, whether it's Max's mother or whether it's uh, Bill Murray's partner or whether it's the father in the Darjeeling Limited. It's yeah. always that death that happens off screen that looms heavy over the film. It's never the death that happens on screen. Yeah. They, those are always used as touch points. Even stuff like Owen Wilson's death in Steve Zissou, which is like so sudden and really tragic, uh, is handled with a quietness that happens on film. Or like when the kid dies in the Darjeeling Limited. It's all, it's all becomes very quiet and cathartic as opposed to something that looms heavy. And in mm-hmm. this one, so many people die in Grand Budapest. And yet... It's when I think of the Grand Budapest, I think of a joyful movie, and yet it's the movie, it's a Wes Anderson movie with the most death in it. What does that say about this film? I don't know. It's interesting. It's the power of Rafe Fiennes to just charm the pants off of everybody, including the <laughs> viewers who are not. He's not even flirting with you, the viewer, right? Uh, but somehow with his odd. Uh, his odd flair mm-hmm. you know you watch him interview uh zero's lady friend and yep. Agne- or agatha 
Yeah, and he's name. he's just being his charming self. And Zero's right. in the back. Don't flirt with her. Don't, Don't flirt, flirt with, with her. her. Yeah, because but there's no other mode. Gustav only works mm-hmm. in one trajectory, and that is flirty and friendly. Even in prison, he has this charm and saying, "Would you? Would any of you prisoners like a spot <laughs> of mush?" Yeah, he has a way of saying it's rather good it today. That, and it it wins him friends, mm-hmm. so that when you know, he has a crew to escape with when he's escaping, <laughs> and that guy's like, yeah, they're trying to break out. The big weird guy yep. <laughs> chokes him out, and yep. it's, it just gives him kind of like a good look. Snitches get uh, stitches, baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love that stuff. Um, and it's... You're right. He, there's a charm element that hand, that goes along with all of these confident buffoon characters. They're always so charming, and they know how to get people onto their side, and that's part of what makes them leaders, right? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, he, Ray Fiennes is very, very charming. And that's why his character is so... I mean, I'm kind of coming to grips with how wonderful his character is, because you're right. I, I do think it's Ray Fiennes' character, M. Gustav, who carries this movie and lightens the load even though there are some very heavy, dark things happening in it. And mm. you root for him from the start. It's so... I mean, we get introduced to him having sex with old ladies. Like, that's what he does. <laughs> she was dynamite in the sack. Yeah, like, that's his. That's what he does. I mean, it's, it's uh, professionally unsound. I feel like <laughs> the concierge or whatever, is, whatever his job is, he should not be fornicating with the, with the frequent visitors of the Grand Budapest. Um, it appears to be bringing them return customers. So. Oh yes, it does. Oh yes, it does. But that's the thing. Like we're we're introduced to him, and he's already kind of a sleazy guy. But <laughs> yep. at the same time, we love him. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this. It's so interesting, and I really feel like his character. There needs to be. We just need to put an earmark on this character because it's one of the best characters that I can think of right now that that, that I've seen on film. And. That's why I, I bring up Christoph Waltz, mm-hmm. especially since we've covered Inglorious Bastards on the cast. There yes. is oh yes, yes this character, and I'm trying. To, do you have any historic reference points of this character of the fast talker, smooth operator, <laughs> not a good person necessarily? They've got right. Christoph Waltz is awful, and he has moments like when he uh, chokes uh, the gal out, where you really see his. Brutal. His yeah. shitty side come yeah. through on top of the fact that he's a Nazi and hunting Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, with Gustav, it's a little bit easier. His dark side is really just that he, ta- whether or not he's taking advantage of the patrons of his hotel, yeah. I think is a question of debate. Absolutely. Um, I mean, he's, but he's he takes certainly... pleasure in it, and you could say that he's doing it just as a gold digger. Like, he's he's trying to get in the wheels of these ladies. Yeah, this was his end goal all right. along. You could say that, but at the other end, it seems to give him great and sincere pleasure to do this. And I do think it's also interesting that he's he's saying that, like, in his old age, you got to take what you can get, basically. That's what he tells mm-hmm. Zero. Although I feel like with his charm... <laughs> he could he could he could do fairly well in whatever age bracket he desires. Yeah. Know. But it is the it doesn't have to go for the old ladies. It is the fantastic Mr. Fox. Right. He needs a certain level of admiration and people fawning over him and he's going to get 
Yes. And for efficiency's sake, he's going to get the maximum from the older crowd. You're totally right. He's going to get that admiration that he always that he longs at a, for at a high frequency versus yeah. the younger crowd where he's going to have to really compete. Uh, the cockpit <laughs> buffoon, when possible, does not compete. They prefer totally. open fields. The, yeah, you're which totally to right. Operate. There's the never hustle element <laughs> to to the. Yeah. Uh, you like, want to you know, skate like, through this. It's like Max trying to build the aquarium in Rushmore. Like, he doesn't want to actually go through with the, with the process of getting <laughs> the permits or uh-huh. anything. He just starts digging on the baseball field. Yep. <laughs> you know? He just he just leans into it in the assumption right. that, well, I've charmed my way till now. Yeah. it's And that's uh, also the M. Gustav move at the end. I've charmed my way till here. Why does it'll work on this death squad? Right. Nope. It did not. <laughs> Although I love the something about the explosive nature of his character uh, in both fights on the train, where he comes out of his chair to yeah. defend Zero. Uh, that's just so funny. Exactly. For what what are doing. really dour racist scenes? Like Zero yes. is being targeted for being an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And the way that Ray finds is, you bloody bastard, take your yeah. hands off my lobby boy. Yeah. Um, well, it's great because that endears us to the character, right? Like yeah. yeah, he's a little Loyalty. bit sleazy, but at the same time, he's he's down to uh, to step up uh, for his friends, and mm-hmm. something really wonderful about that. It, this character is really great. I mean, uh, the question, yeah, I mean, it, it's just the overall composition of this film is so wonderful, and I I wonder, you know, I I watched La La Land this week. Because um, it's getting yeah. so much Oscar buzz, mm-hmm. and I, well, we get like a thirty-second review here. Well, I found it pretty disappointing. Really, um, and the reason being is because I'm a big fan. I grew up watching musicals, like uh-huh. Singing in the Rain. In my opinion, is like the greatest musical that's ever happened. Yeah, that's what everybody keeps referencing whenever i hear about the movie yeah and there's a big difference between la la land and uh singing in the rain and i'll I'll bring this back around the grand budapest but um the big difference is that the main characters in singing in the rain uh you know like gene kelly um i'm forgetting carrie fisher's mom's name uh What's that? Not that I remember it, but I feel like we should particularly, you know. <laughs> I know, especially nowadays. We should know this. Debbie Reynolds. Um, Thank you. David O'Connor plays like the comic relief, comic relief in this movie. Mm-hmm. They are amazing. I w- just go online and watch any, go on YouTube and watch any song from Singing in the Rain. And you'll see they're singing and they're dancing. Like the numbers are amazing. And they're so, the spectacle is wonderful because they picked people who could sing their asses off and who could dance like crazy. Like, these people are amazing at dancing and singing, which makes a musical, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And in La La Land, they, they picked two great actors, and there's great acting in this movie. Um, uh, but the problem is that the, they're not great singers and they're not great dancers. You can tell they're not great dancers because they kind of just like walk dance everywhere. Uh-huh. Like they kind of just like shuffle around. Shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. If you compare that to like shuffle, the big shuffle, musicals shuffle. of you know the of you know yesteryear, mm-hmm. basically the forties through the sixties, 
it's it the, 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 La La Land doesn't hold a candle to that, and it sucks, right? It, it kind of sucks for me because I I was hoping that it would be kind of that big spectacle musical, and instead it's kind of a thin story put on a non-exciting musical, kind of melding these things together. And I understand there's novelty to it, but I would like my my review of La La Land is just stay home and watch Singing in the Rain. All right, much better movie. Um, Someone call Hugh Jackman. <laughs> but the thing about this movie is that you know, so you have Ryan Gosling um, and uh, oh, what's, I, what's her name? I, I'm like blanking on names today. Emma Stone and Emma Stone, yes. And they do phenomenal acting in the movie, but I feel like a lot of people are getting caught up in Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, and they're overlooking some of the big plot. Uh, not necessarily, they're not they're not plot holes, but there's no there's not a lot of character development in the movie. It's kind of like we're supposed to care about these people because they're Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Um, and th- I kind of wonder if there's a little bit of that in these Wes Anderson movies. Like we're like, oh, it's Bruce Willis, and uh, and it's Tilda Swinton, and it's you know this movie is just full of it. Like they give bit parts mm-hmm. to Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman, and like it's kind of just fun to see all these guys in their you know in their little roles in the Wes Anderson movie, their little traveling troupe. And I wonder, um, I wonder if I'm getting duped just a little bit in the whimsiness and wonderfulness of this movie, just because I I've been endeared to these characters over the over the stretch of Wes Anderson's films. Maybe, but ultimately, this movie mm-hmm. is centered around the. Uh, Tony Revolori, his uh-huh. name, uh, the kid that played the kid that plays Zero, right? And uh, oh man, Agatha's name. I'm looking at it. Ronan. Her last name is Ronan. I can't say uh, it. Lydia could say it. It's like Sor Sor Sorcy Sorcy. Anyways, I think they do a fantastic job. Agatha and Zero are truly lovable characters. Yes. All on their own, and they're a little bit like. The other actors, seeing Bill Murray and Bob uh, Barron, can't think of how to pronounce his last name. Yeah. Uh, the Society of Cross Keys. Yes. You know, yeah. when we get that montage of yeah. actors you know. Um, right. Or Owen Wilson popping up. It They're almost like the hotel in a lot of exactly. ways. Because they are set dressing. Yeah, like Owen Wilson has like one scene in this movie. Yeah, he's running the hotel while while uh, Gustav, Gustav is yeah. out, um, which I'm glad we got him in there. We haven't seen <laughs> Owen Wilson I know. in a movie. So. I, I really miss Owen Wilson in, in Wes Anderson teaming up. I feel like that is Owen Wilson at his absolute best. And I feel like you can forgive a lot of Owen Wilson when you see him with Wes Anderson. I think so, too. I think that... Helps to overlook things like the drill bit tailors and whatever that Shanghai Knights <laughs> and the interns. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I, th- I think the kids in this movie were there. I, I don't know if it's Wes Anderson is getting very proficient with directing a younger crowd. Yep. Because um, I don't think these two were as young as the kids in Moonrise Kingdom. But right. He certainly gets amazing. Uh, action out of these characters. I, I think that Agatha, her adventurous side, uh, the way that she, you know, as a baker yeah. and then out on these adventures, and the way that Zero plays this learning, this kid that is trying to absorb everything. Uh-huh. And when Gustav fa- berates him, the one, the one time we see him really 
lay into anybody um, when they're trying to escape the prison and Gustav is like, why did you ever leave your country? Obviously, right. you're not doing well here. Yeah. Why would you ever leave? And Zero goes, well, my the war. Yeah, my parents you know, were I'm killed. Ref- yeah. Oh, you're a refugee. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to take back everything I said. Right. And... <laughs> No, it's, it, it's great. Like, there's, uh, I, I really love Abigail's character in this movie. I love her bravery, and I love like a brave character. You know, we talk about Guillermo del Toro and quiet bravery, and how he depicts that. I love quiet bravery in a movie, and she's so awesome. And I love. There's just, I don't know, man. The, Wes Anderson has his shit down, man. And He's got to he shit down to make you like people. a movie with a normal with some female characters, it'd be great. He can write the female characters. He just does it. Yeah, her. I mean, Abigail in this movie does fall into fall into those archetypes of the of Wes Anderson's female characters, and like they are always the ones who are there to save the men. Mm-hmm. And once again, I I I just very interested. I would be very interested on a female perspective on how uh, a woman would um, interpret. Wes Anderson's use of women in his movies because they are very male centric. I think he gets called out. I've seen an interview now where some of the, it's like a Q and a, and a girl yeah. goes, so when are you going to do female actors? And he gets really awkward. Uh-huh. Uh, he tries to say that, uh, Susie in Moonrise Kingdom was the main character, mm. uh, which is total bullshit. Not true. But nice try. And then he kind of just is like, uh, that would be a good yeah, idea. She kind of is, though. She's the protagonist. She's the first one we She's see. She's sharing it. It's hard to it's hard to determine. That would be... That you, that's up for debate of who the protagonist of Moonrise Kingdom is. Maybe that's why I don't like it as much. Maybe because there isn't a protagonist. Yeah. What if that's it? Waffles between the two. Mm-hmm. All right. Jump on the forums. Let us know. Do you think who is the pro, who is the main protagonist of Moonrise Kingdom? All right. Well, there's. I guess that's that's all the time we have. But uh, but this movie is awesome, man. I, I really yeah. enjoyed it, and I'm interested to see next week uh, where it will fall. I don't think it's going to be my favorite one. Yeah, but I I'm, do think it's probably his best. Sit one. down and really meditate on what is my favorite Wes Anderson movie because it's it's a hell of a run. Uh, it's a hell of a run, and we're done. There's some and, high quality stuff here. I mean, this is one of the more difficult lists. Mm-hmm. I think that Fincher was pretty difficult. Um, I feel like Tarantino was pretty easy actually. So I uh, this is this is one of the more difficult lists because there's a lot of high quality stuff here. Well, a lot of high quality and a lot of similar. Before, if it's like a tie, you start picking out what is your favorite. Tarantino, you pick like what is your favorite kind of action movie in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Um, this Although one, I love I lot. love westerns over war movies, and I love I like Inglorious Bastards better than Django Unchained. Django. The, he that either here nor there, but uh, <laughs> we will be back next week to wrap up our Wes Anderson run. Please go to the forums. Forums.baldiv.com. Be a part of the conversation. You could also email us directpodcast at gmail.com. And until next week, when we wrap up Wes Anderson, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.